All right. Good morning again. My name is Hannibal Rodriguez. I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. Visiting for the first time, you don't need to look for another church. This is the church for you. We are here to love you and serve you in any way we can. I want to welcome all of you guys, good-looking people, all of you guys worshiping with us online. Um, what a pleasure that we get to do this together, right? Uh, for the last two few weeks, we started a new series called Gospel Culture, in which we are going through these 12 biblical traits that help us with three things. Number one, it helps us define what it means to be a biblical, a biblical church. What does the Bible say about what a church is and what a church does? Number two, it gives us a blueprint of the things that we ought to believe and the things that we ought to practice to experience spiritual renewal. And number three, it gives us the tools necessary to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of a changing society. The last two weeks, we started with the supremacy of the scripture, meaning that no church can be called to be a church if the Bible is not at the center of everything. And because the Bible is at the center of everything, number two, we also got to be a gospel-centered church. We preached and we talked about the centrality of the gospel. Today, we're going to talk about a topic, as I mentioned before, that we all know about. And yet, for some reason, we continue to struggle with it. Today, we're going to talk about the power of prayer. Now, because this is family, right? We could be honest right at the beginning of the sermon. How many of you guys struggle with prayer? You see, I'm so glad you raised your hand because I was going to say, I, I struggle with prayer. So the reason why I'm preaching this sermon is not because I'm an expert. It's because I'm not. And the reason why we need to hear this sermon is because we need to become, listen up, church, we need to become a church of prayer. I want us to be known for many things. But among them, in, my, in the top of my list, is a church of prayer. And what I'm going to do today is try to convince you of it. And try to convince you why that's a necessity for us. Um, I don't know if you ever, you know, when you hear a testimony and it's one of those things that you just can't forget it even though years have gone by. In the first, right at the beginning of my Christianity, I, I was reading a book and, and, and in the book the author was talking about how that he's, he was saying that he prayed for his father 21 years. So he became a Christian as a, as a young adult, and his father was involved with witchcraft. And if you know any of that, uh, for someone that does that kind of stuff, it's really hard to come out of it and become Christians. For 21 years, this man was praying for his father, and nothing was happening. One day, his father, at an older age, he gets sick, and he goes to the hospital to visit him. And he continues to pray for him because he believed that there was power in prayer. 21 years praying for the same thing. I don't know if you have prayed for 21 years for something, but there's something there to be learned. Two minutes, church. Two minutes before this man passed away, he surrendered his life to Jesus. 21 years praying for the same thing. I, I want to be like that. I want to be a man that believes in the power of prayer. And I want to invite you to join me in that desire. So we become 
people of prayer. So for that, we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you have your Bible, go to James chapter 5, verses 13 to 17. If you don't, don't worry. The Lord forgives you. We're going to put those on the screen. All right? I hope you get the hint. I'm asking you to bring your Bible. If you don't have one, don't worry. I will give you one. All right? Take one of those in front of you. Free. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. If you're still here, can you please say, I'm still here. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. How about if we read that last sentence together? The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Let's read it again. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being. Even as we are, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three, three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, please speak to us. You may take a seat. Obviously, that passage is all about prayer. And it's interesting that right at the end, it talks about Elijah, and I'm not going to spend time there. But the gist of it is this, that Elijah was just like you and me. He was a regular man. Nothing special about that man. Actually, if you read his life, his story, you realize that he was just a regular guy. But he was a guy that believed in the power of prayer. And I want to give you today three arguments why is it that this is a necessity for us? And why is it that we must learn to pray? Number one, because prayer is a natural human instinct. In other words, even if you're not a believer, you can make it without prayer. Everyone prays. The religious people pray. The non-religious people pray. A few years ago, there was a study done um, in which 30% of atheists admitted praying sometimes, meaning that when things get complicated, everyone prays even if you don't believe in anything. Karl Barth, the theologian, he will call this the incurable God sickness. We were all designed to need and communicate with something outside of us, something divine. Second reason why this is important is because for the church, praying is part of what it means to be the church. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's prayer after prayer. Prayer should be central and prayer should be crucial in the life of God's people. Now, if you don't believe, if you don't think that that's the case, just look at Jesus' life. God, in human form, understood that he could not live in this world without prayer. So, for example, this is the reason why he taught the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. 
This is why he prayed for the little ones in Matthew chapter 19. This is the reason that it, it was through prayer that he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11. This is the reason how he prayed for Peter so he wouldn't experience a spiritual hardening, Luke chapter 22. He talked about the temple as being the house of prayer in Matthew chapter 21. He said that some demons can only be cast out through prayer, Mark chapter 9. He prayed often and regularly, Matthew chapter 14. Sometimes he prayed all night, Luke chapter 6. He prayed before he goes to the cross, Matthew 20, uh, 26. He prayed for his enemies as he's nailed to the cross in, in Luke chapter 23. He submits to God, his father, uh, in prayer in Luke chapter 23. And he dies praying in Mark chapter 15. So this is the question. If this was important to God in human form, what makes us think that this is not important to us? If Jesus couldn't do it without prayer, what makes us think that we can do it without prayer? One of the most convicting uh, things to me years ago, I was reading through the life of Martin Luther. Uh, and uh, one of the things, he was known for praying every day two hours at least. And he said something in one of the writings that I found super interesting. He said... I have so many things to do today. How many of you guys ever felt that way? I have so many things to do today that I need to pray for hours. And we will be like, what? That's not productive. Maybe he knew the same thing that Jesus knew. That we all need to know. And number three... I think that we need to talk about prayer is because it is possible for you to know the Bible, to have the right doctrine, to have the right theology, and lack power and effectiveness because you don't have a life of prayer. The Bible without prayer means nothing. Knowledge without prayer means nothing. Feeling condemned already? Good. I don't want to be the only one. Listen to what James says in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He has power and he works. So these are the three questions I'm going to try to answer today. Why is there power in prayer? How do we put it into practice? How do we know that God hears it? Simple questions. So I need you to do me a favor. Can you look at the person next to you and ask the question? If you're Christian, if you like the person next to you, if you don't like it, just skip it. Just excuse me, I got to talk to that person. <laughs> ask the question, how is your prayer life? Go ahead. That, it was just one question, people. <laughs> now, when, when, it, when we say that, I, I don't mean to ask, I make you say that so you feel bad about yourself because you just asked the same question to somebody else. It's because I want us to treat this text with honesty. And unless we're honest, we're never going to grow. 
right? If, if our prayer life is, is mediocre, we're never going to grow. And yet I know that part of the reason why we need to hear this and preach about this is because our change is going to be gradual, but it has to change. Amen? Let's go with the first question. Why is, um, why is there power in prayer? I think that the best way for me to kind of summarize uh, what I have in my mind about prayer is this sentence. It says, prayer makes much of God and less of us, and it changes things and it changes us. Let me say it again. Prayer makes much of God and less of us, and it changes things and it changes us. That is kind of my summary why I believe that prayer is important. So I'm assuming that everyone in this room or worshiping with us online have heard of the concept of the American dream. Now, if you haven't heard about that concept, I got to tell you that as an immigrant, that was one of the first concepts I had to learn. So I was watching a show, barely learning how to speak the language. So that means like a couple of days ago. Um, and I'm watching this show, and then there was this, this uh, program created to help people learn the language. Um, and the picture that they were proposing to me was that I had to learn the language to buy this humongous house in which you have the picture of a Latino. This is the commercial, people. This is not me. A Latino with a humongous house married to an American, right, with this amazing job. Now, listen, nothing wrong with biracial marriages. I'm all for that. I actually think that we should encourage that. What I found interesting about that, though, is that I needed to learn the language to fulfill the American dream. Forget feeding the family, forgetting surviving. No, 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 no. You need the American dream to be successful in life. You know what the problem is with that? I know a ton of people that come to another service in this building that have not, that learned the language, and they still don't have the American dream. So I was looking out for the definition. What is the most common definition of the American dream? And I found this one that is the most popular, actually. It says, the American dream is a happy way of living that is thought of by many Americans and sometimes um, Americans as something that can be achieved by anyone in the U.S., especially by working hard and becoming successful. And I find that so ironic because, once again, I know a ton of people that learn the language, work hard, and they still don't have the American dream. That's not what I want to talk about today, though. That's a side note. That was a free one. <laughs> what I want you to see is that there's something about the definition of American dream that I think has affected all of us. The idea of the American dream is that if you try harder, you work harder, you discipline yourself, you do whatever you have to do, you can make it happen. You know what the problem is with that? The power is within you. What makes it happen is within you. Your abilities, your talents, your gifts, you try harder. It's a very humanistic, man-centered approach to life. 
And I think, church, that that idea is one of the reasons why we don't pray more. I'm talking about me. Maybe, 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 just maybe. I also believe the American dream. In which I could make it happen. You know how I know that? Because of how much I pray. Maybe that's your case. Maybe you think that you can make it happen. How do you know that? Because of how much you pray. And I pray that the Lord change me. And I'm praying that the Lord change you. Because as a church, we cannot do without prayer. And in addition to that, I think that sometimes because of that, we also have a different definition of why prayer is important. So, for example, in verse 15, James says this, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And people will grab that, that sentence and say, Okay, if I pray with faith, man, things must happen. The problem with that understanding, though, if you don't have a good theological understanding of the concept of prayer, is that you can think that what makes things happen is the fact that we are praying. It's almost like if we have faith in our prayer. Or it's almost like if we have faith in our faith. You know what the problem is with that? That you're praying for somebody, and then the person doesn't get healed, and then you got to say, man, someone in this room doesn't have enough faith. Which one of you don't have enough faith? You're messing up our prayer time. But that's not what James says. That's not how you ought to read that verse. What makes our prayer powerful and effective is not how much we pray and the intensity of our prayer or that we have faith in prayer or faith in faith. What makes our prayer powerful and effective is the one we pray to. This prayer is about God. It's trusting God. It's going to God. This God that is omnipotent and self-sufficient, therefore, he can do the things that we cannot do ourselves. It's this God that is omnipresent and omniscient. Therefore, he knows what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Not us, not our prayer, him. It is having faith in the one that is good. When he tells you yes, when he tells you no, and when he tells you not yet. You might disagree with him. But however God answers, always comes from this God that is good. And not only good, but he's wise and perfect. So I don't care if the answer the Lord gave you to your prayer, you don't like. I don't like it sometimes. But because he's perfect... Is a good answer. The prayer that is powerful and effective is the one that rests not in our ability to pray, but in the one we pray to, faith in God. That prayer makes much of God and less of us, and it changes things, and it changes us. Now, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you some examples that we find in the text. So, for example, in verse 13, James says, if anyone among is in trouble, let them pray. 
Interesting that the word trouble there is a concept that you find in the entire letter. And when he uses the word trouble, he's talking about suffering in general, like all kinds of sufferings, all kinds of pain. And James says, if you are struggling with anything in life, pray. This is the kick, this is the, the, the kick of it, though. When James uses the concept trouble in the rest of the letter, interesting enough, he never says that we should pray for God to take our problems away. Not one verse in the entire letter says that we should pray for God to take our troubles away. He does the opposite. He tells us that in the midst of troubles, we should ask the Lord God, trust God for perseverance to help us grow and for divine perspective. Is there anything wrong that we pray to God for him to take our problems away? Of course not. Go ahead. But that's not what James teaches. He teaches that in the midst of everything we go through, we must learn to ask God to give us endurance, the right spirit, patience, and divine perspective. And someone may ask, well, that doesn't make any sense, Hannibal. What kind of Christianity are you trying to sell? That doesn't work. How is that appealing? Well, this is the thing, church. It is possible for God to take your problems away and for your hearts never to change. It is possible for God to take all pains from your life away and for you to continue to struggle with the same things in your heart. And God is not going to settle for anything less than the transformation of your heart. Not the modification of your circumstances. Did you know that there are things in life that you cannot learn unless you suffer? There are things that we only learn when we have lived long enough, suffered long enough, and sinned long enough. I wish it would be different, but it's not. There are things that we only learn when we have lived long enough, suffered long enough, and sinned long enough. If you don't think that, that is true, let me prove it to you. I don't know, how, how many of you guys are parents? Raise your hand. I'm, I'm assuming that you're familiar with this verse. Folly is bound up in the heart of the child. But the right of discipline would drive far away, drive it far away. You ever heard of that verse before? If you haven't, this one is for you, free. It's in the Bible. This is what is interesting about that verse, though. The word folly there could be translated as someone that is foolish in their heart. That's what it says, right? Someone that lacks wisdom and understanding. And it says, actually, that by nature, we are all born that way. We... For lack of, I'm sorry for the expression, like dumb people, basically. We struggle with foolishness since the moment we are born. The word folly in the original has the same root for the word thick. You know what that means? That we are born, that we are born thick in the head, hard to understand. Now, all your kids are beautiful, but that's what they are. 
<laughs> someone says amen. That was so disrespectful. <laughs> Listen up. I think that even if it, at that, this moment you don't agree, we all agree. You know how we know? You remember when you were a little, chi a little, ch a little child and you made some sort of decision, right? And when you became a teenager, you look back at your decision and you say, man, that was, that was foolish. What was I thinking? How many of you guys have ever gone through that? Did you know that once you become a young adult, you look back to your teenage years, and in your teenage years, you took some decisions that you thought were brilliant, and when you become a young adult, you realize and say, man, that was a dumb decision. How foolish. You know what? When you become a, a regular adult, and you look back at your young adult's life, and you think about the decisions that you took, you say, man, what was I thinking? That was foolish. Did you know that when you become a maturing adult, you, do, you look back to your regular adult life and you say, what the, what was I thinking? <laughs> that was foolish. I almost said something improper. Did you see that? <laughs> what was I thinking? You know what I learned from that? That we are always fools. And that we're still fools today. We just can't see it today. We're going to see it later on. Listen up. And the only way we grow out of our foolishness is when we learn to pray through our struggles. And the Lord is shaping us through our foolishness. And God is working through our pain. And there is no way to grow out of our foolishness unless we pray. Amen. It's going to take me my entire life to stop being a fool. At least me. You probably graduated, but at least me. The prayer that is powerful and effective is the one that has God not necessarily to take your problems away. But as you encounter all of, all of these things that you pray for endurance and patience and the right spirit and divine perspective. Lord, I don't like this, but what is it that you want me to do with this? That prayer makes much of God and less of us. It changes things and it changes us. Amen? One more example. In verse 13, he says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. And obviously, this is talking about worship and adoration. And you got to ask the question, why would James include this form of prayer, which is adoration or worship, why would he include this one here? And I think that the answer is super simple. There's a tendency that when you are happy, it's much harder to make much of God. You know why? Because we don't perceive that we need him. That was hard to hear. This is why we pray much more when we struggle. But James knows that if we don't learn to pray 
as worship when we're happy, that will kill our prayer life. This is what Tim Keller says. To fail to pray, and in the context of this, I would say to worship, is, is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. Look at what he says. To not pray in times of happiness is to not treat God as God. Because everything that is good comes from him. Not from you. Not from your work. Not from your effort. Just from him. So we pray hard when we struggle, but we pray just as hard in worship and adoration when things are going well. Actually, church, I would argue that the more you struggle, the more you got to worship. Because the more you need to remember, the more you need to preach to yourself who God is and what God does. The moment you forget that, you start playing God. The prayer that is powerful and effective is the one that never forgets who God is, and treat God as God. That prayer makes much of God and less of us, and it changes things, and it changes us. And James continues in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And a couple of things that you can see there is that when we are sick as a congregation and as a church, you have permission to reach out to any of the elders because part of the call of the elders of the church is to pray for the sick. Should we call the elders for every single little headache you get? Of course not. Take a pill. But if something major in your life you should be able to feel free to reach out to the elders. But this is what I want you to see. That this is not just something that the elders ought to do. If you read the rest of the, the, the passage, it calls us to pray for one another. So if someone you know within the family of faith or outside the family of faith, we are called to pray for one another. And I want to argue that to not pray for one another is also a sin. You know where I get that from? 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. As for me, far it be from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. Notice that it says that to not pray on behalf of someone to the Lord is a sin against him. But it's also a sin against one another. You know why? Because if we know that the only person that could make a difference is him, to not pray for the other person is also a sin against the other person. It's not loving well. It's not caring enough. Can you see why the church must learn to pray? Now, I know that there's got to be at least one person here that is saying, well, Hannibal, you guys talked a lot about sovereignty, but now you're saying that we must pray for things to happen. How do you put those two things together? Because if God is sovereign and in control and he's going to accomplish his plans, why, why pray? Why don't we just chill back a little bit, relax, let the Lord do his thing? Listen, I think that that's a valid question. 
And I think that a lot of people have that question. And the best answer I could give you is this. Don't create a dichotomy where the Bible does not create a dichotomy. Do not separate these concepts like if the Bible is separating these concepts. The Bible calls believers to believe 100% in the sovereignty of God. That he will accomplish his purposes and plans. That's his call for us. And at the same time, he calls us to pray because prayer changes things. So instead of creating this separation, take these two um, truths as truth. I pray, but I trust. I think this is what James had in mind in verse 15. He says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. And he tells you that if you don't pray, nothing happens. Can you see it? That prayer changes things. You pray for a sick person and the Lord, uh, the Lord will heal and raise him up. But if we only take that verse as, that, as it is, then you are not understanding once again the concept of faith. If you believe in God, the way the Bible says that you ought to believe in God, your prayer and your petitions must submit to the sovereignty of God. Listen, I pray for healings. No issues whatsoever. I pray for miracles. No issues whatsoever. I pray that, Lord, that the Lord makes the difference. I pray that he transforms people. I pray that he lets me see things that I could have never could have seen before. I pray that he moves mountains. I pray that he will do crazy stuff that nobody expects. But at the same time, I must pray in faith to him. Knowing that everything I'm praying for must submit to his sovereignty. I love the way J, uh, Douglas Moo puts it. This is a commentator in the book of James. He says, uh, the, faith, the faith exercise in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overruling providential purposes of God. A prayer for healing then must usually be qualified by a recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. You don't get to separate those two. You believe that God is sovereign? And you pray like crazy. You believe that his will will get done. And you pray like crazy. Have you ever taken the time to think. How would your life look like. If you would have answered. All your dumb prayers as a kid. <laughs> have you ever thought of that. How crazy your life would be. If he would answer all your prayers. Listen, I wouldn't be married to my wife. I prayed for 20 girls as a teenager. <laughs> I wouldn't be a pastor. I wanted to be an astronaut. I'll be super cool, but I wouldn't be a pastor. Wait, actually, maybe, maybe, I wouldn't even be here in the United States. 
Because I pray for God to, to give me stuff in Latin America. If we would only know everything that he knows, we would pray different. But because we don't, we pray with courage, trusting his will. We pray with courage, trusting his sovereignty. The prayer that is powerful and effective is the one that rests not in our ability to pray, but in the one we pray to. It is the prayer that asks God, not necessarily that takes our problems away, that we pray for endurance, patience, the right spirit, and divine perspective. It's the prayer that chooses to worship before anything else. And it's the prayer that believes that prayers are needed, but at the same time, our prayers must submit to the will of God and the sovereignty of God. That prayer makes much of God and less of us, and it changes things, and it changes us. That's why there's power in prayer. Now, if that is true, and this is going to go quick, question number two is, um, how do we put prayer into practice? And this is going to be super fast, so stay with me. I think that you need five words. Posture, motives, um, order, habit, and trust. Super fast, because for some reason, somebody gave me less time. <laughs> Posture. You need to learn to check the attitude of your heart when you pray. Are you praying because you're desperate for God to do something? Or are you praying because it's a religious thing to do? Unless you realize that you are completely in need of God, your prayer won't make a difference. I need God to do something for me. I can do it myself. Number two, motives. Are you praying for God to give you something that is a function of God in your life? Or are you praying for God to give you something that will not replace God in your life? I think that sometimes it's better not to pray for things that in our hearts play the role of God. You know, going back to this example I gave, if, when I was young, I was praying for this girl. And I'm praying that the Lord gives me this girl, right? But if in my heart I'm praying for that girl because she's my Savior, maybe you shouldn't pray for that. Because what I need is to God to be my God. Order. I actually think that you always need to start prayer with adoration. You know why? Because that way, prayer is not about you. It's about God. Four, habit. You know how you move? You know how you get to enjoy prayer? By praying when you don't enjoy it. You pray until you enjoy it. That's why I think that for Christians it's important that we have set times of prayer. Okay, this time I'm going to pray regardless of how I feel or I don't feel. Let me tell you this. You're never going to feel that prayer is a good thing unless you choose to pray. And number five, trust. And this is what we talked about before. You pray like crazy, man. But you must trust when God says yes, when God says no, 
And when God says, not yet. You must trust. Now, there's one verse here, though, that drives me crazy. And it's this verse, and this answers the last question. How do we know that God hears it? It says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But this verse gives you a condition, you know? It tells you that in order for God to answer your prayer, you must be a righteous person. Don't you think that that's a problem? In order for God to answer us and hear our prayers, we must be completely righteous. Right with God and right with others. You know that this verse is not about us. No one is that righteous. This is James taking us back to Jesus. Helping us remember that the only reason why God hears our prayers is because the righteous one not only lived the life that no one has lived, but died the death that we all deserve. And when we go to the Father, we go through Jesus. That's why we say, in the name of Jesus. You know what guarantees that God is listening to our prayers and that he will respond somehow? Because we go through Jesus. What makes our prayer powerful is not that we're making it. It's that it goes through Jesus. And that's why we pray. So when I'm praying, I'm praying like crazy for you. I'm praying like crazy for me. And I'm praying for the Lord to do something in you and in me. And I do it with confidence. You know why? Because my prayer is going through my Savior, the one that is truly righteous. The one that made the best prayer in the world. You know what that is? Father, please forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's what we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that we get to have this beautiful gift called prayer. My prayer, Lord, is super simple. Would you please make of us people that trust you enough to pray. That we understand, Lord, that everything we are, everything we have, everything that happens cannot happen unless we pray. While at the same time, we trust your sovereignty and your will. Would you please make of us a church that is known by how much and how we pray. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...